chapter 7 as we uh, return to our study of the Sermon on the Mount. This morning we're going to be looking at verses 13 and 14 of Matthew chapter 7. Larry Walters had always dreamed of flying. It had been a dream since he was a kid, but he had poor eyes and so he was unable to join the Air Force. Instead, he became a truck driver. But the dream never died and an idea was hatched till on July 2nd, 1982, it was launch day. Larry, together with his ground crew, his girlfriend at the time and a buddy, had made a plan, or Larry had made a plan, that his ground crew was helping him. He had purchased 43 weather balloons, he had a lawn chair and bought a parachute, made plans, and uh, on that particular day, he, he tied his lawn chair to his Jeep in his backyard, he filled those 43 weather balloons with helium and uh, strapped them to the lawn chair, put on a parachute, grabbed some sandwiches, uh, a six-pack of beer, a CB radio, uh, and, and a pellet gun. And he sat down in the chair. Uh, While he was making preparations, the strap holding him down actually broke prematurely. And Larry shot into the sky faster than he had ever imagined. A thousand feet per minute. He did not stop ascending until he hit 16,000 feet. He was spotted by two commercial airlines. Can you imagine them talking to the control center, uh, Delta to control center? There's a guy in a lawn chair here. After 45 minutes, he, he, uh, he began his descent. He had his pellet gun. He shot some of the, the, the perimeter balloons and slowly began to descend and, and got close to the earth. He, he actually got tangled in power lines for a while on his way down, but eventually they broke and he landed. He was promptly arrested, and the arresting officer was quoted as saying, we know he broke some part of the Federal Aviation Act, and as soon as we decide which part it is, some type of charge will be laid. Apparently, when asked why he did it, Larry's response was, well, you can't just sit there. That's what Jesus wants to say to us this morning. You can't just sit there. This morning, we will be confronted by words of Jesus that are a call to action, a call to make a choice, words that challenge us. We can't just sit there. Now, we have spent over the last year and a bit time working our way through what is the longest single block of Jesus' teaching in the New Testament. And at this point, we are coming towards the end. We'll end in, uh, in chapter 7. And so we'll get there sometime in January. We'll wrap it up. Uh, the sermon itself, the sermon proper, is really done at this point. Jesus is beginning to wind things up. And so the paragraph we're looking at today and the next number of paragraphs, Jesus will be confronting us with a number of paired alternatives in this challenge to us. This morning, he will speak of two gates, two roads, two ways. In the coming weeks, two trees, two kinds of fruit, two claims, two houses. And Jesus wants us to think about all that he has been teaching us, all that he has been describing for us, all that he has said, and the implications of what he has said. Now before we dig into our text, I want to remind you of what we have already encountered, what we've discovered. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is prefaced, I have reminded you of this week by week. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is prefaced by an announcement of good news, that 
That through his coming, a whole new order of existence is broken into the world. The future is invading the present. Heaven is invading the earth. That in his coming, uh, there is good news. That in his coming, our sins can be paid for. That we find life. When that good news of what God is doing through Christ takes hold of a person, something happens. And that something that happens is what is described here in the Sermon on the Mount by Jesus. That something that happens is the creation of a new kind of human being, restored humanity. Uh, Men and women, boys and girls, teenagers exhibit different characteristics, different character traits, live for different purposes, have different motivations and ambitions, behavior ways of relating to the world and those around them. I have been contending that the Sermon on the Mount is not Jesus giving us a new law. It's not Jesus giving us the old law cranked up on steroids. No, Jesus here has been painting a picture of gospelized humanity. Human beings formed by the power of the good news of the cross and the power of His Spirit at work in us. This is what people begin to look like when we believe the good news, when God is having his way in us. Now, I want to take a few minutes to walk through all that Jesus has said to us so far in the Sermon on the He begins with the Beatitudes, and if you were here, you recall that the Beatitudes are not Jesus giving descriptions of eight different kinds of people, eight different kinds of disciples. No, the Beatitudes all work together, and they begin appropriately, necessarily, with the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who who come to God knowing that they are spiritually bankrupt. You come deserving nothing but judgment. Blessed are you when you know your, your absolute total need. For yours is the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. He, he continues, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who who recognize their own sin, their own rebellion, their own brokenness, and and not only their own, but that of the world around them, and are moved to tears. You will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Remember, the meek are not, meekness is not weakness. Meekness is, is power. It is strength under control. Blessed are the meek. That is, we know that because we are loved by Christ and redeemed in Christ, we don't have to fight for our position for our, to be at the front of the line. We, we can be a servant. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are the righteous. Jesus could have said that, but he said, blessed are those who recognize that they are not righteous, but they hunger and thirst to be right with God and right with others and right with all of God's creation. For they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. Those who have in Jesus at the foot of the cross experienced the abundant, amazing, mind-blowing mercy of God. Who can't help but respond by extending mercy to those around them. Blessed are the pure in heart. Those who desire one thing, that is, they desire God. They will see Him. That's amazing. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who have experienced peace with God through, through Christ and now run out into the chaos and conflict of our world, proclaiming peace, proclaiming Christ as the Prince of Peace. For they will be called children of God. And when we do that, We are persecuted. Blessed are the persecuted. 
Because when we live as kingdom people, when we live as the gospelized, we will find ourselves in the crunch of a world that is in rebellion against God. But Jesus says again, blessed are you when you are persecuted for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus defines this new reality. It is true of all those who believe in him, who, who put their faith in this good news. And Jesus moves from the Beatitudes and speaks of the influence of his kingdom people. You are the salt of the earth. I, I've placed you there to arrest the decay. You, you are the light of the world. You are to shine brightly because I live in you in the midst of a dark world. And then Jesus begins to spell out with what I called six illustrations how our lives are changed, our behavior begins to be transformed. He, he shows us that his desire in, in the commands, do not murder, was never just about merely the externals. Thinking that if we don't kill anyone, we've obeyed. No, he says if you hate, that's a problem. I'm looking at your heart. I want your heart to be transformed. He, he says the same about adultery and lust. He calls us to be those who speak honestly. We don't need oaths and play games. We just are those who, who speak the truth. He, he gives us God's design for marriage, that marriage by his design is to be for life, a, a picture of his relationship with the church. And he tells us to renounce revenge, to renounce retaliation, instead to live in such a countercultural way where we love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. That, that's, that's the fruit of the gospel in how we live our lives. And, and Jesus goes on and he shifts from how we behave to, to, to our motives. Again, to our heart, he speaks to matters of piety, giving and praying and fasting. And he says, when you do these things, don't do them for the applause of those around you. Do them in secret. Do them because you know your heavenly Father sees. Do them for the right reason. We recognize our need for Jesus to change our heart. And Jesus goes on and he speaks to our ambitions. Don't seek the things of this world, but seek first my kingdom. Don't pursue the things of the world as those around you do. Seek my kingdom and don't worry, I am a good father who will provide for you. And over these last weeks, Jesus called us to not judge, to not be judgmental, condemning people but to live with humility and grace and gentleness, gently, lovingly trying to identify and help our brothers and sisters root sin out of their lives, and to exercise discernment. And lastly, Jesus calls us to be those who, who seek the Father, trusting Him, confident in Him, persistently ask, seek, knock, Last week, Jesus said he, he summed up everything with the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. This sums up all that, that, that God's desire is for us, that we would use as, as the key to how we treat others. The question of how do we want to be treated. All this Jesus has un, unpacked for us. He's shared this with us. This has been the Sermon on the Mount, and we come now as Jesus begins to wind things up to verses 13 and 14. If you have your Bible, I invite you to follow as I read. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, 
and broad is the road which leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. I, I want to take the rest of the time that we have together and ask four questions with you of this text. First, how are we to understand and think about the metaphor that Jesus uses? Secondly, what are the implications of what Jesus is saying? Third, how does the Sermon on the Mount fit within the larger biblical message of salvation by grace? And fourthly, what is the essential posture for all who will enter the narrow gate? Question number one, how are we to think about, how are we to understand the metaphor that Jesus, Jesus uses here in our text? The metaphor itself is, is fairly straightforward enough. Jesus says there are two gates. We can picture that. One gate is narrow, the other is wide, it's broad. Uh, likewise, there is a road to which each gate leads that is like the gate that leads to it. There is a narrow gate that leads to a narrow road, and there is a, a broad gate that leads to a broad road. Jesus provides us with a few more details. He tells us that there are many who enter through the wide gate. There are many crowds that are on the broad road. There are only a few who who go through the narrow gate. There are only a few who are traveling the narrow road. And then lastly, Jesus identifies the destinies to which each of these gates, each of these roads leads. The broad road is said to lead to destruction, while the narrow road leads to life. That's all pretty clear, pretty straightforward. So what are we to make of what What are we to understand from this metaphor? Well, first, we should understand one thing that is pretty obvious. And that is that Jesus is asserting that there are only two gates, that there are only two roads, there are only two ways, there are two options, a choice before us with two options. We, we live in a time and a place where that is hard to wrap our minds around. We have so, so very many choices. I remember years ago, our youngest son, Brennan, uh, in our house, I don't know how, what traditions you have, but Saturday was special cereal day. That means that's the day you get to eat the cereal that's not good for you, but it's good. You know, Captain Crunch and things like that. And each of our three boys would, in succession, get to be the one that chose the special cereal for that particular uh, season until it was done. And one particular Saturday, we woke up and there was no special cereal. It was Brennan's turn to pick it, so jumped in the van with me, drove to our Sobeys just down the road, and went in there. And if you think of, imagine a cereal aisle, there's like a gazillion kinds of cereal. And even if you rule out all the healthy ones, there's still a lot of options. Well, my youngest son, Brennan, struggles a little bit making decisions, a little indecisive. And I remember as a little kid, I don't know, five, six years old, I remember he couldn't, he couldn't do it. And I, I became a little impatient. I'm like, Brendan, pull the trigger. Make it a decision. Just pick a cereal. But he so wanted to get the right one. He so wanted his brothers to be happy with what he picked. He so wanted to enjoy it. And there were so many options. He just couldn't. And he ended up melting in a little pile of tears right in the middle of the aisle. He just couldn't make up his mind. See, we live in a culture with so many choices, so many options, but Jesus here paints a very stark reality. There are two gates. There are two ways. Two roads. That's, that's it. That's one thing that Jesus shows us here. 
And in doing so, Jesus stands in continuity of what, what scriptures declare all the way through, that, that there are two ways. We, we see this fleshed out throughout the scriptures, perhaps nowhere more clearly than Psalm 1, the intro to the book of Psalms, where we read about the, the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. The way of the wicked that leads people to be like chaff that the wind blows away, and the way of the righteous where people are described like trees planted by streams of water. Two roads, two ways. Jesus shares that. That's what Jesus is describing here as he begins to wrap up the sermon. There are two gates. There are two roads. There are two destinies. Second, and this follows what I just said, we... We should understand that Jesus is not suggesting that there is some third neutral place from which we make this choice. Every metaphor, every illustration breaks down at some point. And Jesus is not suggesting that we find ourselves in some neutral place with these two gates before us and, and we choose one or the other. And if we can't make up our mind, maybe we just hang out in that, that neutral place. We're not sure. J- Jesus is not Suggesting that that, that, is, that is pushing this metaphor beyond what is intended. The scriptures are clear that we are born in sin. The Apostle Paul says that uh, apart from Christ, before we repent and believe, before the Spirit regenerates us, we are children of wrath. We are slaves to sin. We are dead and in darkness, the kingdom of darkness. That's what's true of us. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, we are all as descendants of Adam, born in guilt and shame, born in sin and shaped by iniquity, born indeed dead in trespasses and sin. We are all, in other words, we are all on the broad road. We're through the wide gate. That, that's, that's where we find ourselves prior to repentance and faith. And, and so the point Jesus is making is not, hey, you're in some third neutral place and you can hang out, take your time and figure it out. The reality is one road or another. And if we have not repented and believed in the one who came bringing good news, we are on the broad road. We need to understand that. We are lost. That's that's what Jesus' point is. With his coming, with his announcement, he opens up before us another way. He opens up before us a narrow gate, a narrow road, a different path. So that's question number one. Let's Question number two is what are the implications of what Jesus is saying? What do we do? Where is this metaphor leading us? Well, first, it seems obvious to me, should be obvious to us, that Jesus is contending that his sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is not something that, that is simply to be admired or commended. That, that all that Jesus has said to us over these previous chapters is simply something that it's a good idea to think about, to contemplate and go, wow, that's some really amazing ethical teaching. There are many in our culture, many over the centuries, who look at the Sermon on the Mount, who say that's the, the greatest block of ethical teaching we have in in human history. But Jesus clearly expects more than that we would simply commend this or recognize it as, hey, that's that's interesting to think about. What he has been describing over these three chapters, uh, we are not to remain passive. He is calling us to action. He can't just sit there. He's calling us to respond with obedience to all he's taught. He certainly the challenge is we are not to simply ignore all that has been said. We, we are called to belief, 
to faith and, and to be transformed by the gospel. I have encountered people, I have encountered a, a pastor colleague who, who contends that there are two categories, if you will, of Christians. There are, there are those who are carnal Christians and there are those who are disciples. The distinction he makes, the distinction many make, is that you can, you can be a Christian, a carnal Christian, a worldly Christian. You can, you can be someone who puts your faith in Jesus as your Savior, but quite honestly, you're not all that jazzed about him being Lord. And so I'll, I'll take salvation. I don't want judgment. I don't want hell. I'll believe in you, but, but I'm not really interested in following you. And then he would contend there are some who go the whole way and say, oh, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I, you, are, you are Savior and Lord. And, and I want to say right now that that thinking is indefensible biblically. Jesus makes no provision for that. We, we've been talking through the Sermon on the Mount that this is a description of God's blessed humanity. Jesus comes bringing good news, and that good news transforms us. Ignoring Jesus' words, just saying, hey, it sounds good, but I don't really want to do anything about it. I'm just going to sit here. There is such thing as spurious faith. That is faith that is not genuine, faith that is not real. And the reality is that in the coming weeks as we walk through these last paragraphs of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus will confront us with that hard truth. Jesus, using this metaphor, is a call to response. It is a call to action. Our lives are to be transformed. We are to grow in obedience. Second, Jesus is saying that the lives of his disciples, our lives, if we put our faith in him, are necessarily going to look a lot different than the lives of those around us. Because those around us are on a different road. They've chosen the wide gate. They're walking the wide road. They're going the easy way, with the flow, just kind of, do what you want to do. Go with what you feel. But the reality is that if we have read the Sermon on the Mount, if we have given thought to what Jesus has said, we, we recognize that that's not the picture that Jesus has painted. And the truth is we, we will read what he has said and be overwhelmed by, by the, what he's called us to. He said, hey, this isn't just about actions. This is about your heart. This is about character. This is about your, your motivations. This, this is... This is a hard way, the narrow road. We're, we're to love our enemies. I've contemplated that over these last months as a seeing what's going on in the Middle East. What, what does it mean, Jesus, when you say love your enemy? It's pretty challenging. It's challenging when someone cuts me off. But imagine being in a, in a situation like that. What does it mean when Jesus says you're to love your enemy? See, the, the crowd enters at the wide gate. They go with the flow. The narrow gate is like a turnstile. It's, it's hard to get through. And there are things that need to be left behind. You, you can't take everything with you. When I was 19, after my first year of college, I moved to Kelowna for the summer and began uh, working in construction, cribbing, concrete work. And I remember, I think it was my second day, my foreman, his name was was Harry. I thought it was Larry, actually, and everyone left me calling him Larry for months. His name was Harry. 
Some of you maybe are familiar with the Waterfront Park in Kelowna. There's a boat lock and, and a lagoon. I had the opportunity to work on that concrete work. In my second day, I was working on that boat lock. We were forming it up, and Harry had just bought a brand new tape measure, and he dropped it by accident into the forms. And I was the smallest person there, so he said, Dennis, crawl down in there and get this. So these forms are about 20 inches apart maybe, but there's, there's two mats of rebar, and so I had to lose my tool belt and my sweater and my hard hat. Lost a bunch of blood going down there, trying to crawl through this down to the bottom to get Harry's tape. I mean, you, you, just, you couldn't take anything. It was tight. It was narrow. That, that's the picture. Jesus says the gate is narrow. It's, it, it's going to require that we leave things behind. We leave behind the, the, the crowds. That's one of the things we leave behind. Uh, thank God that, and I say this regularly, that when we come to faith in Jesus, we are brought into the family of faith. We, we don't walk alone, but we enter alone. We enter alone. Every single one, kids, youth, teenagers, I want your attention. Every single one of us enters alone. You need to come to that place where you recognize the depth of your sin and your need before God, and you need to enter alone. Repent and believe. We leave the crowds behind and we enter, and when we enter in, we find ourselves in, in a family of believers. Thank God we don't walk alone, but we enter alone. We leave the crowds and the applause of the world behind, and we leave worldliness behind. We need to leave the character of the world behind, the, the behaviors, the motivations, the ambitions of the world behind, all replaced by a kingdom life that, that is described here in the Sermon on the Mount, gospelized character, gospelized behaviors, motivations, and ambitions. We walk through the narrow gate and along the narrow way as pilgrims. I can't help but read these verses and think of Pilgrim's Progress. Some of you know that story. If you don't, I commend it to you. Read it. We pass through the narrow gate and journey on the narrow road. Now, some of you might be thinking at this point, Dennis, this feels like bait and switch. Have you not been telling us all along, all through this sermon series, that the Sermon on the Mount is descriptive, not prescriptive? H have you not been saying that this is not uh, a new law? It's not the old law cranked up? It's not a new set of rules? I have. I have been saying that. And I stand by that. Uh, we face the danger of reading this. Uh, uh, you, you face the danger of, of reading what Jesus says here and suddenly concluding, hang on, I think, I think we're wrong. I think Dennis is wrong. I, I, it sounds like Jesus is saying we do these things so that we get in. Here's what D.A. Carson writes. He says, because the Sermon on the Mount contains a lot of ethical instruction, many conclude that it lays out a series of conditions which must be met if a person is to enter the kingdom of God. In, in this view, an individual enters the kingdom because his obedience merits entrance. We hear these words of Jesus, enter through the narrow gate. And we realize that what Jesus means by that is that we are called to action. We are called to respond to all that he has been teaching us to this point. And, and suddenly we can get this nagging feeling that someone switched the price tags. That, that this is how we get in. 
that this is how we merit entrance into the kingdom. Well, I want to contend with you with great passion that that would be a superficial reading, a hearing even of what Jesus says here. It would be wrong. And so that, that leads us to the next question, the third question that I want to ask, and that is, how does the Sermon on the Mount fit with the larger biblical message of salvation by grace? I've been contending that what Jesus is doing here is painting a picture of gospelized humanity. He's been describing for us what men and women, young and old, begin to look like, how lives are transformed when we believe the good news that in his coming, he has come to restore humanity. He has come to set things right. He has come to make us who we were created and called to be. When we believe that, when he fills us with his spirit, this change happens. I stand by that. When the good news is taken to heart, when we believe it, when it takes root in our souls, our lives are changed. The Bible tells us that God's at work, the biblical story tells us of God's redemptive work, his, his work of restoring his fallen creation. We were all created in God's image to be a, a reflection of what he's like, image bearers in his good creation. But through our rebellion and sin, that, that image has been not completely lost, but it's been bent. It's been marred. And all of creation, including us, and we know this, if you're honest, we know that that there's something wrong, something that is off kilter. We look around our world, we, we know it in our own hearts, and we know it when we look around, that things are not the way they're supposed to be. God's goal is the restoration of his creation. God's goal is not simply to provide a get-out-of-hell-free card. That is, redemption is far larger than just saving us from hell and judgment. Yes, that is part of it. But, but God's redemptive work is far, far greater, far more than that. He is wanting to restore what was lost. He's wanting to set things right. As we read the scriptures, we see, we encounter over and over and over again this message of grace, that salvation comes by grace. Think even the Old Testament, I think I, I mentioned this last week, even the Old Testament law, God's people never, never assumed, it, God's law was never intended to be the means by which they were saved, the means by which stayed right with God. If you pay attention to the biblical story, what did God say when he gave them the Ten Commandments? Before he gave them the law, God said, I am the Lord your God. See, what we need to see is that God acts to save first. God saves. And then he shows us what, what it looks like to live as those who are saved. That, that the truth is that there is grace all the way through Scripture. Read the book of Leviticus. Read about burnt offerings and sin offerings and grain offerings and guilt offerings and peace offerings. In each of these offerings, it points to Jesus and the cross. There was never some, some concept that, hey, we can get this right. God gave them the sacrificial system. He gave them, in Leviticus 16, the day of atonement, this day where, where two goats were, were chosen. And the sins of the nation were confessed over the head of one, and it was brought into the wilderness, this picture of removing sin from the camp so a holy God could dwell in the midst of an unholy people. And the other goat was killed 
and offered to God as a burnt offering. Annually, this was something God's people did. And though many lost sight of it, though for many of them the, the obedience to law became this legalistic thing that they thought they could achieve, that was never the intent. God's law, the Old Testament, is always pointing ahead to Jesus and the cross. The message of Scripture is about the grace of God, about how salvation is through grace alone. Galatians, Paul goes, goes after those who are coming to believe that, that salvation is through Jesus and something else, circumcision. Yeah, the cross is important, Jesus is important, but we also got to do this other bit. And Paul goes, no. Ephesians says that we were dead in our sins and God made us alive. By grace you have been saved. Romans tells us that, that we were dead, we were enemies of God, we were in rebellion against him, and Jesus died for us. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, he who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This glorious exchange where Jesus bears my sin and yours, and we are clothed with his perfection, forgiven and credited with his obedience. Salvation throughout the pages of Scripture is always a, a result of God's grace, not us earning it. And we encounter that truth as we read the story of Jesus. Jesus says that he came for the sick. It's not the, the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. He tells us it's not the, the righteous he's come to save, but the, the sinners. Matthew 12 the words of Isaiah are applied to Jesus that he will not break a, a bruised reed or snuff out a smoldering wick. Jesus comes gently, graciously to people who are broken and sinful and lost. Salvation is by grace. What we need to recognize is that grace, grace does not result in inaction, in passivity. That's where James goes when James says in his epistle, show me your faith without works, I'll show you my faith by my works. That is, genuine saving faith always inevitably results in transformation. It might be slow. This is not about sinless perfection, but it is about divine transformation by the power of the Spirit at work in us. D.A. Carson says this, to put it another way, the salvation which God gives by grace is not static. It inevitably results in good works. Good works may not earn salvation, but they will certainly result from it. You see, genuine believers, he goes on and says, hunger for experiential righteousness and continue to acknowledge poverty of spirit, recognizing constantly that their acceptance with God depends always on Christ's sacrifice. Where did the Sermon on the Mount begin? Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they come with nothing. That's the foundation. Jesus never leaves that. But he also says, blessed are the, those who hunger and thirst. That is, as we hear and see the good news, the glory of Christ's death for us. We can't help but be transformed. We can't help be those who long for right relatedness with God. Our, our lives are are transformed by the power of the gospel. That's what I've been saying. There is deep repentance and a hunger for growth that every one of us in Christ will experience. Leads us to the fourth question. 
And that is this, what is the essential posture for those who enter the narrow gate? What does it look like to be those who have believed the good news, who have entered in the narrow gate? In a word, surrender. What's the posture? It's the posture of surrender. I don't know if you recognize this, but much contemporary evangelism invites people to accept Jesus. If you heard this language, maybe you're guilty of using it. Accept Jesus. Accept Jesus in your life. I want you to think for a moment with me. Jesus Christ is the almighty God in human flesh. He is the one who has created all things. He is the one who sustains all things. He obeyed his Father willingly, became incarnate, came to earth for us. He willingly went to the cross. He suffered for you and I, bearing the penalty for our sin, for our rebellion, for all our wickedness. And he rose triumphant over the grave. Does that language of accepting Jesus seem appropriate? Do do I accept Jesus? Or, Or is it more a matter of his accepting me through the cross? See, this language of accepting Jesus is not biblical language. We are called to surrender. We're called to lay down our life before him, to lose it in order that we might save it. Sam Reimer, a Christian sociologist, in his latest book, Caught in the Current, describes a profound shift that has happened in our culture. And you'll recognize this. A a generation ago, there was a sense of of external authority. That is, we, we looked outside of ourselves to figure out things like identity and truth and what we should do. We, we would look to family. We would look to community. We would look to the church. We would look to, as believers, we look to God and God's word. What, what does God say? But that has shifted in our culture. It, it's been a massive seismic shift from seeking Authority outside of yourself to looking inside, internal sense of authority. And so we hear this language all the time. I've got to find myself. I've got to discover myself, my truth. And instead of looking out, we look in. And this is impacting the church. It's impacting some of us. You, you see, if our source of authority is internal... Then I look inside myself, what do I think? What feels good to me? And and we live according to the dictates of our own inclinations. And that, brothers and sisters, is a far cry from the surrender that Jesus calls us to. Jesus bids that we come and die. He says, if you would be my disciple, you must deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. See, we we see that internal sense of authority fleshed out in a myriad of ways all around us in our culture, and it impacts us. Where do we look for answers when we encounter difficult ethical questions or other questions in our culture? Do we say, well, you know what, I'm uncomfortable with what that says, so, you know, it feels good to affirm certain behavior. The church is all over the place, or so many of them are beginning to affirm 
a sexual ethic that is a far cry from what Christ calls us to because it, it doesn't seem right to me. It doesn't feel good to me, but, but the question is not what feels good to us, but, but what, what does God say? What does it mean for me to bow before God and surrender? To say, Father, what, what you say, what you want, what you call me to. Jesus says, enter through the narrow gate. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has painted a picture of the life that we're called to, the life we were created for, the life he has redeemed us for. It's not ever a matter of earning it, meriting it. It is a matter of entering into the life that we were made for. And it's the life we enter through, surrender to Christ, the bringer of good news. Larry Walters, July 2nd, 1982, said, well, you can't just sit there. As we draw towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, we each face a question. What will we do with what Jesus has said? What will we do with his Sermon on the Mount? It's not just words to admire. To think about is a good idea. Jesus, our King, our Savior, our Lord, calls us to surrender. He confronts us here with a call to respond, a call to action, a call to surrender. It's, it's not ultimately a set of choices that we face. It's one foundational choice that will dictate everything in your life. Will you surrender to Christ? What will it look like for you to enter through that narrow gate? That shapes everything. So my question to you is, and it's not about your performance. It's about your heart towards Jesus. Have you entered through the narrow gate? Are you on your knees before the King of kings and the Lord of lords? Have you chosen to follow him? To embrace what he called? to bow before him, to let go of all that hinders and to step through that narrow gate and follow Christ who gave himself for you down the narrow road upon which he leads you. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for, we thank you for your amazing love, your amazing grace, your amazing story of redemption, what you are doing, and Lord, the privilege, the delight it is to be called to you. I pray, Jesus, that you would move in each of us, that we would be encouraged and excited, filled with delight at this picture of, of life as you intended it. Lord, it's, it's, it's a difficult life, a challenging life, but overwhelming it overwhelms us with a deep sense of our need for your Spirit's power, your work in us. But Lord, it is good. It is the way you call us. It is the way you lead us. I pray, Jesus, that you would move in us, that we would surrender to you, that we would respond to you, that we would take step into action, that we would follow you on this road. We pray it in your name, Jesus. Amen.